I'm Sienna. I'm the kid. I'm Sarah. I'm the mom. This is Queer Kids Straight Mom. Let's talk. Welcome back to Queer Kids Straight Mom. Today we are going to talk about Pride. Pride Month is rapidly approaching, but at least here in Montana, we have already started seeing some of our local Pride events around the state. So today we are going to talk about the origins of Pride as a celebration of queer rights and queer history. I'm going to start with a brief history, I did a little research. If you have any interesting facts or stories to throw in, go ahead. First Pride March was held in New York City on June 28, 1970. It was officially called the Christopher Street Liberation Day March and was scheduled by a group of activists for the first anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. It drew just a few thousand participants, but it has led to thousands of pride parades. Mark Siegel, Gay Liberation Front and Marshal of the First Pride March, recalls, We intended to march from Greenwich Village and up to Central Park. We didn't have a police permit, so no one knew exactly what would happen. No one knew the type of force that might greet us. So we had self-defense classes and learned how to protect ourselves. As a marshal, I especially had to know how to react and control the marchers if we were attacked. When we reached 23rd Street, I climbed up a pole, looked back, and saw a crowd stretch all the way to Christopher Street, just like we had promised. And us activists transformed a movement from a few ragtag militants to a thousand strong. As my friend Jerry Hoos used to say about that year, we went from the shadows to sunlight. So these pride celebrations first began not as celebrations, but as protests, as marches, which I think, you know, a lot of people don't remember because it has become such a celebration, a party atmosphere. It was very much an act of defiance when it started. I was reading some interesting accounts of leaders of early, early pride marches, like what I just read. And another one, Carla J., who was a co-organizer of the first march in New York City and LA, recalls that the Police chief at the time in L.A., I love this quote, a man of antiquated views and diction, told the organizing committee that he'd have to allow thieves and burglars to parade next and slapped on impediments such as million dollar liability bonds. The group had to get last minute approval on June 29th at seven o'clock. And, you know, I think that really demonstrates we still see this today with uh, people organize protests and then they get in trouble and people are like, oh, well, you should have gotten a permit. You should have done this. You should have done that. You should have followed the law. But the thing is, when you look at the history of activism, the history of protests, if a protest is doing something really radical or really significant, like these pride marches were doing in the early 70s, you're existing in an environment where the system is designed to keep you from using your voice. So, you know, you're not going to be able to go through the procedures and follow the law because the law is designed to not let you speak. So, you know, I think that's that's something that's still relevant today. Protest is not supposed to be a cute little thing where you get your cute little permit and you get your cute little signs. It's supposed to be an active challenge to a government that has been failing in its job of protecting its people. So true. It's interesting you said that a protest against the government, because I thought this was interesting about the first parade in Boston, which was 1971. They had a really broad approach. Like they stopped at the Boston police headquarters to demand an end to police harassment, the state house on Beacon Hill to demand equal rights, and at St. Paul's Episcopal Cathedral to demand religious tolerance. Then they headed to Boston Common for a small rally and symbolic closet smashing. 
which I didn't see any real details on what the symbolic closet smashing was, but it sounds it really entertaining. An actual closet. It must have been like a wardrobe or something. Right. right? <laughs> <A> wardrobe <laughs> smashing. <laughs> You're right. It's a really good point. But anyway, that was, you know, government, religion, police kind of hit it all in that one. And then these started to happen around the world slowly. Britain had their first in London in 1972. Israel had their first march in 1979. It's more of a public demonstration. And they had to sing as much as march to comply with police regulations about organized events. But today, apparently, Tel Aviv's Pride Parade has an estimated 250,000 participants each year. So that's a pretty big deal. So started out very political and... Then we see in the 80s, a whole nother element of activism came into it with the AIDS crisis. So the 1987 Pride March in New York City, ACT UP made a statement about AIDS. They had a float designed like a concentration camp and staged a die-in. The next day's ACT UP meeting was packed with hundreds of people because it was a really effective way of bringing some attention to that particular issue. The parades grew a lot in the 90s as people became more comfortable being visible and also grew more diverse at that point. Uh, I think, you know, people became more conscious of making space for people with disabilities and people of color. So, and I think the 90s are really when we started seeing like the pride parade become like an event, not as much probably a protest as it was, but taking on kind of that element of celebration. And, you know, I think a lot more people probably had openly gay friends and going out to support them. And it became a more socially acceptable thing. And I mean, a parade with like rainbow colors and good music and dancing became much more of a party atmosphere. It's kind of interesting now, though, in the past few years, I feel like we've come full circle a little bit. There were all these gains in LGBTQ rights, and now those a lot of those gains are under attack. And I think the element of protest is coming back a little bit. I thought this was an interesting quote. Rebecca Rushoff, a teenage transgender activist and speaker at Youth Pride 2019 says, I remember when I participated in the Pride Parade in Warwick, New York in 2018. How amazing it felt to be in a space of light and joy. After months of protesting President Trump's anti-transgender policies, the parade helped me realize that celebration can also be an act of resistance. So, you know, that's probably a young person that came of age when it was a celebration and just started to see that resistance maybe creeping back in. So that's a bit of a history. Do you have any other interesting things you know about the development of this? Or I mean, I think it's also you very briefly touched on it at the very beginning, but um, you know, that the original march was scheduled for a year after Stonewall, which also was a protest and kind of a breaking point where the people at the Stonewall Club fought back when the police tried to raid them. And I think that's another kind of interesting juxtaposition. It's the same thing as the pride marches and pride parades that we see now. It's a juxtaposition of, this, you know, a celebration and a, a celebratory environment. And, you know, oh, you're hanging out at the gay club with your friends. And then simultaneously a protest against police brutality and discrimination. And I think that's juxtaposition, but also that tension is something that's always been present in Pride celebrations and the fight for LGBTQ rights. And that kind of leads to this next 
thing that I did some reading about, it is a bit of a source of conflict and frustration in the community, uh, especially among older people who remember those first marches and what, what they were fighting for and how that was an act of defiance. And they were booed and threatened. And there's a sentiment among a lot of those people that it's become an excuse for people to party. And, you know, most of these people express that straight people are always welcome, but the feeling is that they should be there to support the LGBTQ community, not to just like, hey, thanks for the great party. I found a quote from a professor of gender and women's studies at UC Berkeley, Paolo Bacchetta, who says it's not in the interest of most LGBTQ people of color to be in this kind of celebratory type of gay pride that has absolutely no political vision. And you and I have talked about this a little bit, that there is a pretty safe, successful place for white, gay, upper middle class men to thrive in this country at this point. Not that they you know, aren't facing any discrimination or comments daily that are hurtful, but it's a pretty safe spot overall. And so, you know, like it's easy to see like characters on TV shows that are successful white gay men and kind of link that vision with your vision of the pride parade as this big party, you know, like this is, this is so cool. This is a cool thing. Like I watch Will and Grace. I totally support gay people and I'm going to wave my rainbow flag at the party. And, and I loved Will and Grace too. I'm not like trying to trash the show at all, but that's not the reality of what most LGBTQ people in this country are experiencing, particularly people of color or people with disabilities, people without financial resources. Trans people in particular right now. Yep. So I think that's a really good point that a parade with no political vision, no like, hey, here are the things that we still need to work on has kind of lost the point. And, you know, I, I'm pretty proud of the Pride events that have taken place in Montana. I feel like every year that I have gone, I there has been a big emphasis on political activism and here are what allies can do and you know, joy, joy is an act of resistance as opposed to just, hey, everybody, let's have a party. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we've done a reasonably good job. I mean, you just look at the Pride Weekend that just took place here in Bozeman, where we had, you know, some youth events and we had a dance and we had drag shows and we had Pride brunch. And then earlier today, we had a protest for trans rights. And I I think that's that's pretty consistent. And I think that is really the ideal. Like it should be a mix of, you know, celebrating queer joy and having fun events while also remembering why it's so important to make these spaces of queer joy and why why how that joy is so hard won and that we still have to protect it. Yeah, definitely. It's good to have that a mix of celebration and activism. And I think that's what most of these people are saying is it's great to have the one, but it's pointless without the other. And then of course, there's the whole element of commercialism, which we talked about a little on our episode about rainbow washing and pride month has really become a branded commodity for a lot of companies. And I came across a term that I had not heard before. I don't know if you have. Selectivism. Have you heard that? 
it is not entirely new to me. To you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I hadn't heard it. I really like it. <laughs> yeah. So that is defined sort of as a consumerist donation structure that gives brands and consumers a low effort way to support causes without really making a difference. So that's like the companies that come out with, you know, a line of apparel for Pride Month, but, and they donate proceeds from it, but those companies don't do anything else. And we, you know, if you want to go back and reference some of our resources from the rainbow washing episode, we talked about kind of which companies are doing a better job and which are more of the, the slacktivists. But, you know, if you just donate a small, small bit of the proceeds, but aren't making an effort to hire LGBTQ people or make the workplace safer for them, or you're also donating a bunch of money to people that are legislating against them. It's not that great that you have some rainbow attire for Pride Month. An interesting example that I came across was Gilead, the pharmaceutical company, was a sponsor of New York City Pride in 2018. They make Truvada, which is a drug that can reduce the risk of HIV from sex by over 90%. But the communities that could be most positively affected by this drug um, have a lot of people who can't afford the insurance that covers it. And without that, it's a little over $2,000 a month. So so basically, <laughs> screw you if you're a company that is withholding a life-saving drug from the people who need it most and then being like, yeah, parade. Yeah, that, I mean, to be honest, I think that's also on like the organizers of the pride parade. Like if you're in that position, like you should be like, you know what? Take all that money that you're going to give to us and put it towards making this drug available to people. Right. Yeah. Instead of like sponsoring posters and paraphernalia and stuff like that, for sure. And, you know, it brings up a lot of conversations about, because that one, that was really interesting because we don't always think about the effects of having an unaffordable pharmaceutical to prevent AIDS when we think about ways that you could support the community. And it's a really complex thing to support the LGBTQ community because it's such a vast group of people and there are a lot of cross sections within it that need support in different ways. You know, a couple of examples are homelessness among LGBTQ youth and violent hate crimes towards transgender women. These are two, two things that obviously a message of like, be nice to other people is common among them, but there are really different things that you need to do to help those two groups of people, even though they both fall into this community. And I mean, I suppose that's part of why also that pharmaceutical example is so egregious is that, I mean... Yeah, like what, you know, at a certain point, like what's Target really going to do? Like they can make their workplace more inclusive, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately you're making a pride t-shirt. Like what are you going to do? But if you're a pharmaceutical company, you have the opportunity to do something that actually would address both of those issues because uh, homeless LGBTQ youth and transgender women are both at higher risk of HIV and AIDS. So you are actually in a position of making a huge difference. And I mean, the fact we talked about earlier that the history of Pride is so tightly interwoven with the history of HIV AIDS activism, and then you just take that opportunity to make an actual, real, substantial difference for the community. And you're just like, rainbows! 
Yeah. That's a really good point. That's, that's a group that can help both. And I think it's also an example of kind of those forgotten demographics. You know, when we talk about like the group of people that is most at risk for AIDS is going to be poor people of color. And like I said earlier, when the relatively safe world that most people picture the LGBTQ community as being, I think the easy image to jump on is like the happy white upper middle class mm-hmm. gay male couple with their adopted kids. And that's, I think, a beautiful thing that that exists in our society and that it's like pretty accepted. But there's a whole lot of forgotten people. And yeah, you're right. The pharmaceutical example is a great one of of how those are the people being left behind in pride celebrations. And, you know, there's a matter of, you touched on this earlier as well, but of palatability, right? Like, oh, cute white gay couple with their kid and their house and their dog and their, you know, and their college degrees. And when in reality, the people who most need support right now and um, most need the benefits of continued activism are the people who these companies are going to see as less palatable. I mean, again, with the HIV AIDS example, you know, queer sex workers are also at much higher risk of HIV and AIDS, but, or same goes for drug users, but because those are two groups that it's not palatable to, or it's not um, aesthetically pleasing is not the phrase here, (laughs) Um, but it's not I mean, it would still be very radical for a corporation to be actively advocating for those groups. And it's not something that people are used to seeing. And it's not a thing that most people want to think about that, oh, there are also high proportions of sex workers and drug users within the queer community. And you can go into the social reasons behind that. But the fact remains that they are the people who most need support. And they are also the people most likely to be sort of steamrolled and thrown under the bus by big corporations. Yeah. And I think those are groups too, that it it's still really easy for people to blame them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. It's not like, oh, well, these guys were born gay and they can't really help it, which, you know, fortunately a lot more people have come to understand that that is true. But those are groups that people are still like, well, I mean, they've made bad choices. Mm-hmm. And if you care about human beings, like it doesn't really matter. And the choices that they have made are only choices in that They had very limited options, right? It's not your job to judge how people got into the circumstances that they're in. It's your job to provide support and compassion. And that should maybe be the message that all y'all are throwing on your pride shirts. Exactly. So anyway, that's a little bit of background and, I don't know, editorializing about pride parades, which I still, like, I think it's, I think it's lovely. I think. Like you said, queer joy is really important. I think the events that I have attended, there is such a feeling of joy. There's such a feeling of like the incredible warmth of people around you who love and support you. I think that is necessary. I don't think that's 100% frivolous. And of course, I'm speaking from, from outside the community. But I do think that being in a setting where like you can just be happy for a few minutes and feel loved. 
is an important thing. Yeah. I mean, with uh, Pride House, we just had um, an event for middle schoolers that was basically like, come hang out with drag queens and we'll do a little bit of a drag show and a pizza party and just, you know, come hang out. But I was supervising and like the joy that those kids were getting from you know, having having the drag king and sing at them and uh, the drag queen like with her big shiny wings. And like, I mean, that is also incredibly important is just providing a space for people to be happy and for people to um, experience the joy that in so many cases they were denied throughout their life um, and told that this is never something that you will be able to have this is wrong, you're wrong. And so, yeah, I mean, it's still very important. It's just, you know, a matter of holding multiple truths at the same time. We can acknowledge the importance of queer joy and say this is beautiful and important, and at the same time also acknowledge that there is more work that needs to be done and it can't all be about honoring queer joy because if we forget to fight for queer joy, we're going to not be allowed to have drag shows for middle schoolers. Right. Or, you know, at some point even pride parades so yeah for sure even if you're just going to have fun you're not gonna get to go to that great party anymore (laughs) if you don't get on the activism Uh wagon as well that's our message for the uh the party goers is that party's not gonna last (laughs) without your voice so another thing that I've been thinking about that I think is kind of interesting is if the commercialization of pride is also not unique to pride. Like this is kind of just how America rolls. I mean, there are so many of our holidays that you look at and you're like, oh, this was originally, you know, a very um, symbolically important religious holiday. And there were all of these practices associated with this. Or, you know, this started out as a commemoration of this, you know, wartime event. One example I have been thinking about recently is Juneteenth, which, you know, was just recently within the last couple of years made a national holiday, um, which I think is amazing. And it's important to recognize the importance of it. But I'm also like, how long till we start seeing Juneteenth merch at Target? Um, Which to me feels very disrespectful to a holiday that I'm getting a little bit off track here, but that, you know, a holiday that is supposed to commemorate the true end of slavery. It's there is this weird thing where we as a country just sort of like commercialize everything and turn everything into a party. And I mean, I suppose on one hand, it's good that it's not just happening, like that it's not just trying to take away the significance of pride and that it's just kind of how the country rolls. But on the other hand, it also, I don't know what that says about our culture and how we treat important occasions, you know, both religiously and culturally. That's a whole um, other rabbit hole because <laughs> I think there's a whole conversation to be had about the work culture in this country and the pressure and all of the things that like people really want to like let loose with a party. Well, and also if we're going to be having to give everybody a day off, we might as well figure out how to make that day off give us more money. Capitalism. <laughs> Yeah, I did see something comparing pride parades to like the St. Patrick's Day parade Mm -hmm. and what that has turned into. Like people that aren't Irish don't really care about anything Irish other than like Guinness and dressing in green and, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example because, I mean, actually, I think it's true for a lot of cultural holidays. But yeah, I mean, Irish people were not treated terribly well here for a while. Um, And there was a lot of tension. And then 
somewhere along the way, we developed this bizarre fetishization of Ireland. <laughs> the descendants of the people that were terrible to Irish immigrants are like wearing Kiss Me I'm Irish t-shirts. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, that tension, right? Like, it's good that Irish immigrants aren't discriminated against anymore, but also it is weird and you're being uncomfortable. Please stop. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I have to say, I mean, I love any excuse. You know this. You grew up in my house. Any excuse to celebrate, because I think it is really important to have celebrations. And I love to make a holiday-themed batch of cookies or whatever it is. So we're not, I mean, it's not to like say it all has to be serious at all times, but it is a fine line. Like, remember what you're doing and ask yourself if it's something that, like, you really care about, you know? Yeah, and I mean, that's another thing, right, is like, you know, it's fine for you to want to celebrate something, but first, again, you know, be conscious of the reasons behind the celebration, and also don't make Cinco de Mayo the one day you go to a Mexican restaurant in the year, right? Like, what we're discovering here is that there are so many examples of of this happening throughout the year, throughout culture. It's not just pride, but, right, you know, don't make that the one day of the year that you act like you care about something. Go to uh, go to those restaurants, go to queer-owned businesses. Drink margaritas all year long, people. <laughs> <laughs> not just one day. <laughs> no, I know what you, I know what you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, like you can just make sure that when you celebrate another culture or another group's holiday, make sure that you're doing it in a way that's both sensitive of their culture and also in a way that is giving back to them as much as possible. For sure. So just keep in mind, definitely go if you care about if, if you like are trying to be a good ally to the LGBTQ community and you want to go celebrate at the Pride Parade, just think of it as hopefully you're there to show your support and make your choices based on what are the things I can do to show my support. I'm going to go and wear rainbow colors and wave a flag and maybe give a donation to a cause that's supporting LGBTQ people. Tip the drag queens. Tip the drag queens. Show your support. Don't be a slacktivist. Yeah, so that kind of wraps that up. On that note, with June approaching, happy Pride Month to everybody. And don't think we're telling you not to celebrate. (laughs) Yes, feel free to celebrate. Just, you know, keep in mind why you're celebrating. Yes, we will definitely be checking out stories about Pride celebrations around the country and around the world and judging who's doing it right and who's not. (laughs) That's what we love to do. We love to just sit on this podcast and judge people. But in the best possible way. <laughs> we're judging people for being judgy or non-judgy. But if you judge someone for being judgy, does that mean you two are being judgy and then you're a hypocrite? Mm. Nah. Nah. <laughs> Take care of each other. Be kind. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. If you found this podcast helpful, interesting, or just mildly amusing, please consider rating and reviewing us on your podcasting platform of choice. It really helps us to get the word out there and spread this information as far as we can. And as always, check out our website at queerkidsstraightmom.com or visit us on Facebook, Queer Kids Straight Mom, Instagram at queerkid.straightmom or Twitter at queerkidstr, the number eight mom. And if you're feeling especially generous, please consider joining our Patreon by searching Queer Kids Straight Mom. It helps us 
fund this podcast.